Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 100. You might notice a theme going on here. We're saying old hundredth. Now to Psalm 100, and, and sure enough, it's all about giving thanks. And we've looked at the 100th Psalm before, and we'll look at it again because it is rich and there is a lot there for us to, uh, uh, to, to grasp and to chew on, and it's only five verses long. But it is so full of the remembrance and, and, and to remind us of who the Lord is, of his great love for us, and how we are to respond to that. So if you're able, would you stand with me? Now read the 100th Psalm. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today with your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and give us understanding, for we cannot know your word as we are called to unless it is revealed to us. So we pray, Lord, for eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to know of your great goodness and to give you thanks. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the 100th Psalm, it is a psalm specifically for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth and serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, there are certain things in our lives that when we are aware of them and when we have prove them and know them, that they instill a a great confidence within us. There's no other way to do this. Remember when you were a little child, or maybe this fits one of your children, and, and, and they're convinced that there is something under the bed, or there's something in the closet. Now, if you've seen that movie about the monsters you know there's something in the closet Um, but you know they're convinced there's something and you've gone in there five times and finally you convince them to come out of the bed and look under the bed and to see that there is nothing there but the dust bunnies okay and they go oh okay now I'm now now I know now I am convinced and then they can sleep peacefully or maybe, guys, when you were a teenage boy and you finally got the nerve up to talk to a girl and find out that they did not have cooties. Or maybe it was boys that had the cooties. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And you find out that it's not too bad. And by the time you're 30, you're not afraid of them anymore. It's great, okay? It really works out. But, but when you know things, then you begin to have confidence because you're living them out from a a position of understanding, a position of having proved them. You've looked under the bed. There is nothing there. You know for sure. Now you can live in a different way. So when we finally come to grips with who the Lord is, what he has done for us, what he continues to do for us, and the extent of his love, the extent of his, his faithfulness to us, then our actions, then our attitudes, then our view of the world will be very different. And it will be full of thanksgiving. 
So in our psalm today, we are commanded. Now, this is, this is a command. It is in the imperative mood. It is, um, uh, you have to do it. You have to know that the Lord himself is God. That's what it says in verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. This is not one of those knows that say, well, you know, I want you to think about it and contemplate it and, and see what you come up with. No, that's not what it says. You are to know beyond a shadow of the doubt that the Lord is God. And he is the only one. And it is to fill your heart and to fill your mind to such an extent that you live that way. That there are no other gods, there is no other thing to invest your life in that even comes close. This is God alone. And God commands us to know this. So those first five words there are really what separates this psalm from verse 3 from the rest of the whole body of understanding of well, how should I live? Should I live? Uh, should, uh, you remember the, the book, The Be Happy Attitudes and, and, and Positive Living and Positive Thinking? That's just, that's just emptiness unless you know that the Lord himself is God. If you're going to base your happiness and base uh, your, your thought on anything else, it is changeable and it will adjust and it will let you down. But the Lord, he himself is God. That is our starting point. Now, the power of the existence and the reign of the Lord of the universe is sufficient for anybody to be optimistic, is sufficient for anybody to be happy, to develop and sustain happiness and confidence and security within our lives. But if you're going to place it on something changeable, then your security and happiness, etc., will change. If you're going to place it on the unmovable God, then those things will be unmovable. So those words, the Lord, he is God, and however, this is, I don't want you to think this is trite. This is built upon layer and layer of understa- theological understanding. This is not something that you, you, you drop on somebody who's having a tough time, who has no theological understanding, who doesn't know what Scripture says. But he's God, so he is the answer to every problem. He is the solution to your heartache. He is there in the midst of every struggle. Now, whether I like or agree with the struggle, he is there in the midst of it. Today and whatever we will face, he is in control. He is on the throne. He is God alone. When Martin Luther, in those tough times when everybody wanted, it seemed like everybody wanted to kill him and he was on the run, he would get his friend Melanchthon and he would say, come Melanchthon, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And they would sit together and sing a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Never. Never failing. So to know the Lord is God means that our faith must be intelligent. Now this is an interesting thing that, that I've had several conversations with lately uh, with people that, that faith is not, especially the Reformed faith. As Presbyterians were Reformed. And, and, and it, this is not a faith where you just go, I'm just going to throw myself into the arms of the Lord, and if he's real, he will catch me. No, he is real. He will catch you. It requires faith, and there are things that we can't explain, but he wants us to be informed. He doesn't want us to sit back and say, well, that's just what Randy says, so I will believe it. 
He wants each believer to dig into his word. He wants each believer to understand and to know him for themselves based upon what he has said to us, based upon what he has given to us in his word, based upon the thousands of years of academic study and linguistic study upon this book that we might know that he is true and his love endures forever. Now the ancient Greeks said, man, know thyself, know thyself. Yet, to know God is far more important than to know yourself. Calvin said, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So notice the order. Knowledge of God is first. Far more important than knowledge of ourselves. Because you can't know yourself until you know the one who has created you. Know the one who counts the hairs on your head. Knows the words before you speak them. You must know him. So to know God means to understand who he is. As he has revealed himself to us. To know what he expects of us. And then to live in obedience to that. To trust him. To live in submission to him. To live in great zeal. Okay, Zeal is not a word that we use too much. But to live excitedly about his call in your life to live with all force and to live with all excitement because he has laid out your life. He has all your days numbered. He has a plan for you. He loves you more than you can imagine. That should cause us to live this life with zeal and excitement because also to remember that we are not self-made because it is he, the Lord God, who has made us. Spurgeon says, Shall not the creature reverence its maker? Some men live as if they made themselves. They call themselves self-made men, and they adore their supposed creators. You get that? How many of us adore our creator if we made ourselves? But Christians recognize the origin of their being and their well-being, and they take no honor to themselves, either for being or for being what they are. Neither in our first or second creation dare we put so much as a finger upon the glory. First creation is when we're born. Second creation is when we are born again. That's what Spurgeon is referring to there. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is our honor to have been chosen from all the world besides to be his own people. It is our privilege to be therefore guided by his wisdom, tended by his care, Fed by his bounty, sheep gathered around their shepherd and look up to him. In the same manner, let us gather around the great shepherd of mankind. The affirmation of our relation to God is in itself praise. God has made us. He is our shepherd. He alone is good. The affirmation is that we praise him. We render to him our best adoration. The bare facts are enough to do this, Spurgeon says, The simple narration of the mercies of God from his word should be enough. But yet he gives us so much more. We are the sheep of his pasture is the plain truth. And at the same time, it is the essence of our life. Think about that for a moment. If you know anything about sheep, I mean, sheep are just the perfect illustration for us. Sheep are not very bright. They're often afraid. 
they have trouble looking out for themselves. It is uh, not uncommon for them to wander away. They get stuck in a hole. They may never get out because they'll just sit there and look at you. Oh, why can't I get out? Um, they have to be checked. They, you know, it's not like uh, if, if an animal like a dog or a cat has a, a sore spot or a bird, they'll chew on it and dig it out. A sheep won't do that. So they have to come in at night, and the shepherd actually handles them. Every night they come in, and the shepherd feels them for burrs and for sores and things like that. They have to be taken care of to such an extent, and that's what the Lord does for us. He is the shepherd. Remember from from the scriptures in in, uh, the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the great shepherd who lays down his life. I am the door. The shepherds would be outside the town and, and during the day and at night they would bring their flocks in. And there in the great pen, all the sheep would come. And in the morning, the shepherd would get up and he would call his sheep. And all the sheep that are his do what? They go to him. The sheep that are not his, they go to some other shepherd. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. When I call you, you will come. Those things should give us cause to praise him. So let's, let's look at this phrase again, he has made us. And the word made simply means to take something and fashion something new out of it. So let's look at what this means. The Lord has made all things for himself. We are made for his purposes and his glory. We have been made in his image. We've been made in his likeness for his purposes alone. The Lord does, did not do any work that he did not determine that was good. Well, long has come sin, and we're tainted by sin, so we understand that. But we find that uh, restoration in, in Christ. So secondly, first thing, the Lord made all things for himself. Secondly, he made all things out of nothing, either without any matter at all or without any but what he had created himself. Well, think about that. If you've ever made a pot, ever made something yourself, um, let's stick with pottery that's a good illustration from scripture here you go and you want to make a pot and you're pretty skilled you've got a wheel you're you're ready to go what do you have to do you have to go and get clay so you go out to the the vein of clay and you dig out some good clay and you you wash it out you get all the impurities out and uh, you you work it and you put it on the wheel and you've made a pot and, and there that pot is yours right well you've made the pot But the raw materials were not yours. You did not make the clay yourself. You had to go and get what was already in existence. And then, so so you kind of, you formed the pot, but you didn't, don't have complete ownership of the pot. Well, the Lord has made the clay. He has made the pot. That would be us. He has made all things. All things belong to him. There is no uh, raw material that he had to go and get. He has done all these things to himself, for himself. You remember in the Old Testament from a guy named Belshazzar. He and his buddies are there feasting and they're they're having a big party and they're they're sitting around. And he said, you know what, these cups are not not quite as special as I like. Go to the temple and get those that were set apart and sanctified for worship, those gold cups, and bring them here so that we can drink wine out of those cups. So they get the temple goblets and they come and there they are they're toasting the gods of gold and silver and wine and all of a sudden over there on the wall comes some writing mene mene tekel up harrison and and scripture says and the joints of the king went loose now 
I don't know what the literal translation is, but he was scared out of his mind. How about that? That's a good paraphrase. So he asked all his wise men to come. What do these words mean? And none of them could do it. And somebody said, well, there's this one guy who's kind of old school named Daniel. Maybe he can do it. So he asked Daniel to come and give an interpretation of what those words on the wall meant. And Daniel said, well, king, first I need to have a little conversation with you. Your grandfather was a great king over all the earth, and God gave him dominion over much of the world, and yet his heart filled with pride. Remember, he stood up on his rooftop, roof, rooftop Nebuchadnezzar, and said, look, look what I've created. Look at all the things that I have done. And at that moment, he was struck, I don't want to say, with a sickness that he went out and for seven years ate grass in the field like a wild animal. Until he came to his senses and realized that he, the Lord in heaven is the only God. And he puts men on thrones and he takes men off of thrones. And his heart was changed at that moment. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, he says, The very God in whose hand your breath is, you haven't glorified. He is the one who has made you. Your very breath is dependent upon him. Therefore, this is the interpretation of the writing on the wall. You have been weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting. Your kingdom will be taken from you tonight. It will be divided among the Medes and the Persians. That was the writing on the wall. He was so full of himself. Thought he was a self-made man. He had forgotten that God had made him. We are not ourselves. Number three, he upholds or sustains all things. So in the way that he created it, he is the one who sustains it and keeps it he continues the essence of something in the same way that he created it he does it himself everything everyone falls into this category none of us get up in the morning unless the lord sustains us none of us makes it through the day unless the lord sustains us and you might think well yeah the lord didn't turn off that alarm The Lord didn't get up and do it. He didn't, no, we're talking about something much deeper. He enables us to take the next breath. He sustains all things. Nothing goes on. It's not as if the world and and all of the universe is a self-perpetuating and self-sustaining entity. It is God who sustains it all. The next moment, that is what the Lord does. There's a 13th century historian, his name is Wendover. And he wrote a book called Flowers of History, and and he's writing this history about the Emperor Henry as he travels one day. And he's out hunting on the Lord's Day, and his companions had been scattered, and he came into the entrance of a wood, and seeing a church, he thought he'd go in and have the priest say Mass for him. So he pretended to be a soldier so no one would recognize him. Now, the priest was a man, he said, of notable piety and great spiritual maturity. But he was deformed in his person that he seemed a monster more so than a man. And when he had considered him, the emperor began to wonder why God, from whom all beauty proceeds, should permit a deformed man to present his word and administer his sacraments. When the mass commenced and they came to the passage, Know ye that the Lord he is God, which was chanted by a boy uh, at, at the altar, 
the priest said with a loud voice that, that, that the child was negligent in his uh, excitement and, and seriousness about the passage. So the priest yells out, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. And so the emperor was so struck that this man who had been deformed all his life had such confidence that the Lord had made him and had a purpose for him and could be glorified in his life immediately against the priest's will raised him to archbishop. Such was his commitment and confident confidence in the things of the Lord that God had made him. So we are to know the Lord. And not until you are convinced about who the Lord is, what he, was, what he has done, will you, able to, will you be able to live in peace. And once you are convinced of these things, once you know them, both in your heart and in your mind, and have proved them, then from your mouth and your life will flow praises. And if those things don't flow from your mouth and from your life, then you've got a very large problem, a very large problem problem so what is it that we know about God and how is it reflected in his creation let's look at verse 5 of this it says very clearly that the Lord is good I mean that sums up his character sums up the and contains the reasons that we are to praise him he is good that seems like a limited kind of description about God isn't there so much more about the Lord uh, that, that we could know there are things but understand this word Good. It can mean good, pleasant, beautiful, delightful, glad, joyous. It can also mean expensive and without price. Expensive and without price. So the Lord is without price. With, uh, his worth is beyond anything that can be imagined. Everything that God does is an expression of his goodness. We can praise God for the simple reason that he is good. He is good. Regardless of what happens, God is good. No matter how things turn out, God is good. He is gracious. He is kind. He is bountiful. He blesses us in great and fantastic ways. Spurgeon says, He who does not praise the good is not good himself. The kind of praise inculcated in this psalm, that of joy and gladness, is most fittedly urged upon us by an argument from the goodness of God. What he says, God is good. We should praise that. He alone is good. Well, aren't there other good things? Not in comparison to the Lord. For he is without sin. That is a goodness that is not tainted by sin. Here we have the Lord, and his mercies are everlasting. He is just. He's compassionate. He displays his attributes in the created world. He displays his attributes in his salvation for us. He reminds us that these things are ours from all eternity. The fact that he alone is God means he is worthy of our praise. It goes on to say that what? His loving kindness is everlasting. It endures to all generations. God is not fickle. You know, we can be fickle. We can decide one thing one day and get up the next day and make change our minds. God does not change his mind. He sets his path because this is who he is. This is what he says is right. This is how he moves along. A changeable God would just cause us to be frightened would cause us great terror in our life if we knew that God could change. If somehow he would change his mind. There's a very, very old hymn. I, I, I found it online. I couldn't even find it in any of the hymn books I have. It says, As well might he his being quit, 
as break his promise or forget. God cannot break his promise because of his being, because of his essence, of his character. It is outside of his attributes to break his promise. Are there things that God cannot do? He cannot break his word. When he commits to us, he stays with it. So we rest in his word. His mercy is everlasting. It is unchangeable. It continues on and on and on and on. What do we know about mercy? I don't get what I deserve. Now we think of the advertisements we might see on TV. Get the vacation you deserve. They're trying to guess the Get their credit card or whatever. You know, get the house you deserve. Make the, the mortgages great. You know, get the car. Get whatever, because you deserve it. What is it that we deserve? My goodness, I don't want what I deserve from the Lord because it would be his undiluted wrath on my life. But I don't get that. Who took that wrath for me? Christ. Christ took the wrath for my sin. He took it for your sin. What you deserve Christ bore on the cross for himself. He was dying there. All my sins, my unrighteousness, everything was transferred onto him. He died in my place. God looked at Christ and saw my sin. And now I can stand before the Lord because he looks at me through the finished work of Jesus Christ. His mercy will never end. It endures to all generations His promises are as sure as when he made them as they will be 10,000 years from now. His word does not change. When he tells you he loves you, you can count on it. When he tells you he has saved you, you can count on it. When he tells you he'll take care of you, you can count on it. If he tells you he's coming back to get you and to take you to a place that he has created for you, you can count on it because his word and his promises never, ever fail. So, today we are called to praise the Lord from this psalm and to give thanks for his mercy, his goodness, his truth. So, may your week be full of thanksgiving. You don't have to wait till Thursday to start. You start right now and carry on each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, you call us to give thanks because you're good. And goodness seems at some times, Lord, just to be hard to find in this world. We want something that is really and truly good. We find it here in your word. We find the great offering of Christ for our sin. We who were just full of sin and had no business in your presence, but yet you make the way that we can be there. Our sin... The wrath upon that sin was laid upon Christ and was satisfied. Lord, as our eyes are open to these things, as our hearts are enlivened to your word, we pray that we would give thanks for all that you give us. We would give thanks for your goodness and for the fact that you never leave us or forsake us. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.